0: This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, it's Scott Stevens from the Mindfield here. The show we're bringing you today, we recorded a bit earlier in the year. Certain big things have happened since we recorded this, hence no mention in the course of the conversation. Nevertheless, it's a great show. It's an important topic and we hope you enjoy it. <music>
1: another edition of The Mind Food. I have to confess up front that I'm a little disappointed Scott didn't get created with an opening song, given the nature of this topic. So many
0: could have been on offer. I'll let... Almost all of them in bad taste, though. How on earth could I have... I wouldn't put that past you. Yeah. <laughs> that is, I mean, that is true.
1: I think we throw this open to our audience. Oh, really? Because I think by the end of the show, they could
0: probably send you a whole list of suggestions. Yes, because that's what I really do like. Yep. I love... Lots and lots of f- feedback from audiences about what I could have said differently or things that I could Songs have done can... better. I, yeah. I
1: just—that's the highlight of my. Hey, I'm not on social media; it doesn't bother me. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, this is a program where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Negotiate.
0: Strange that I say that word negotiate every week. Mm, Do we negotiate? Them? Yes. I wonder if we <laughs> because there, there's some wonderful little resonances that go along with the term. Because sometimes moral dilemmas really don't have solutions and there needs to be a kind of creative or moral accommodation to them. That's embedded there in the term negotiate, but also the idea of negotiating one's way through a hazardous whatever. You know, there's the yeah. degree of trepidation. You do negotiate a minefield, I suppose. You do. It's a perfect word. Okay. Well, I see there's a good reason that you made me say
1: it. Mm. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Mm. Welcome. Hello. Um, we've been wanting to do this show yeah. for years, and then it was one of those things where finally events popped up that allowed us to do it. Although, to be fair, if you have, mm. they've just popped up at inopportune times, haven't they? Yeah. So we've just carved out a moment. Yes. To make this happen.
0: And it's so funny that this the way that we could do this topic, it could actually be completely personal. We could make this topic all about a show that you seem to rather like and a show that I completely. Despise. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is the great moral gulf that stands between us. Nothing else really matters but our differing opinions about this Uh, one. There's the sport thing. There's your attitude to Pink Floyd. Well, yeah. Would those really be moral defiance? Yeah, I think so. Do you want to name the show? Yeah, Game of Thrones. Right. Which is an abomination. I mean, not only are the books aesthetically tasteless and written by a talentless pedant. Well, I haven't read the books. Okay, there you go. Uh, But the show is puerile, grotesque. And, uh, look, I, I just, I, I cannot say enough. So this isn't a show about that
1: show. No, it's not. But it because be. that would be so 2019. Yeah. But, also, I love it when you have really strong views about something you haven't seen. <laughs> I think it's really fun.
0: But, so, what's, what is this about? Okay, so, how far, how far back do we want to go? We really have been talking about this for about two years. Yeah. So, with the Me Too movement... Mm. I hate to think that it's run its course because I don't think it has. I think it's probably transmuted itself into a more serious institutional stage. There are all sorts of kind of interesting things here about what the moral status now is of the Me Too movement and the extent to which we will be able to look back on this as a cultural, a political, but then also possibly an aesthetic revolution. Something that maybe didn't inform us of things we didn't already know. To some extent, I think that was probably true. But one of the great things that the Me Too movement that the Me Too movement did was it removed from us the luxury of plausible deniability. In other words, you can no longer go to the films you always used to enjoy and the programs you always used to like and watch the directors you always thought were maybe a little bit risky, but were probably ultimately a little bit benign. You could no longer simply enjoy watching those films or enjoy those shows with an alibi that oh, I just didn't know what was really going on behind the scenes. And I think that's a real... important thing that the Me Too movement has in fact done. It's made us hyper aware and therefore complicit in the things that we watch. Now, one of the questions though that stood out for me immediately as soon as it began to gather steam is, I wonder how it can in fact be the case That these stories, these accounts of sexual exploitation, of coercion, of objectification on film sets, in television studios, taking place between uh, young, relatively powerless would-be actors and extremely powerful, moneyed up old white guys who hold their future careers in there. How is it that as we're coming to know exactly what's going on here, will this ever tip over to the point where we've begun to question something far more fundamental, namely the sheer percentage, the disproportion, I should say, of women who are made to or who consent to be nude or participate in simulated sex acts on screen over and against men who are still given the majority of lines. Will we come to the point where we begin to question overtly whether there is something morally justifiable about the preponderance, the predominance of simulated sex on television screens and on moving screens to begin with as being part of the very culture that has cultivated the worst excesses that have been brought to light through the Me Too movement? In other words, it seems to me that the next institutional stage of this movement needs to be, is it morally justifiable? To have simulated sex scenes and disproportionate nudity at the level in which they are, to the degree in which they are, now that we know everything we know, thanks to the Me Too movement.
1: And this comes up because in January of this year, Mm -hmm. the U.S. Screen Actors Guild published guidelines that were aimed at regulating simulated sex scenes and nudity on screen. And this, in turn, followed, I think, some really interesting revelations from actresses in, I think it particularly Game was of Game of Thrones, Thrones, was absolutely. it, was it Amelia Clark, Clark who made it this was. point? So, who was really conveying, communicating her sense of powerlessness in the scenes that she was done, particularly early on. Mm. So this is one of the arguments about Game of Thrones. It becomes a very different series after I'm sure a couple does. of seasons.
0: I'm sure it only gathers in class and profundity.
1: Well, it actually does. Yeah. I wonder how much of that's to do with the fact that it becomes winter and that's that. But anyway.
0: Um, well, it's, it's too cold for people to just, take their clothes off? Yeah, <laughs> right?
1: yeah, it just becomes way too cold. Um, and Emilia Clarke probably, herself probably spends the last few series very fully clothed as she adopts this sort of warrior pose that and regal pose that she adopts. But if I recall correctly, it was also Amelia Clark, was it not, who several years ago was asked about the level of nudity in Game of Thrones. And her response to it was not that there's a problem here. Her response to it was there really should be more male nudity on Game of Thrones. And I think she may have even said, free the P. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm going to Google that as we talk to make sure that I've got those facts right. But that's, that's my, I remember it really distinctly, like a bell. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time thinking, well, this is a problem, is it not? Like this, in fact, I would go so far as to say, this is the problem in that, and it, that's pre-Me Too. Mm-hmm. But it says to me that this is the pattern, the almost uninterrupted pattern of Western, of contemporary Western culture, which is that the way in which it resolves some kind of inequality seems always to be to resolve it in the direction of further hedonism.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Equal opportunity nudity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Equal opportunity oppression. Mm-hmm. So very rarely, it seems to me, does a moment arise where popular Western culture will resolve something in the opposite direction by critiquing the phenomenon in and of itself, right? The the problem isn't there's excessive nudity on screen and what is this doing? Why is it here? Why do we do it? Is this necessary? What does this do to us as a community morally? And so we don't ask those questions. We ask the question, well, why is it that it's overwhelmingly female nudity Mm -hmm. rather than than male nudity.
0: And I always found that a bizarre way- Uh, I couldn't agree more. For us to approach it, right? However, however, don't you think- Mm -hmm. Look, fundamentally, I'm in agreement with you, so this is just a cheap point, but I think it's an important one. (laughs) The next step beyond equal opportunity nudity Mm. is to have flushed out why it is that predominantly female nudity is so attractive and popular in the first place. In other words, what equal opportunity nudity- then does is it reveals it makes bare the contradiction. What's, no, I disagree with this. Okay. But I think the actual next step beyond that wouldn't be more and more and more and more nudity, but a kind of self-questioning, my God, why do we have to have this in the first place? That's, no, that's kind of where Amelia Clarks ended up. Right? Yes, and I have an exactly right. she did and
1: there was a hashtag free the P going on. This is twenty sixteen we're okay. talking about. Um, I'm not so sure about that. Because I think one of the barriers that the Me Too movement continually runs into is popular culture's incurable hedonism. Hmm. It it can't resolve any of these problems in the opposite direction because that becomes immediately prudish, which then has its own resonances of patriarchy or, or whatever. So in other words, what it ends up doing is just pursuing ever more liberal pastures and thinking that there is some way to resolve all of this through basically codes of conduct or as we've described them, published guidelines from the U.S. Screen Actors Guild.
0: And look, I mean, some of These don't go to culture. No,
1: they do not. And 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 look,
0: some of the guidelines, though, are very, very impressive. I was initially skeptical when I read about intimacy coaches, Mm. but the degree to which those intimacy coaches then need to serve as intermediaries between the actors involved and the powerful directors and the financial interests behind them, the extent to which then sex scenes need to be deleted or removed, have the element of quote-unquote spontaneity removed and be choreographed to the same degree that, say, fight scenes are or car crashes are because of the recognition of the high degree of volatility, the possibility of harm, Mm -hmm. the possibility of abuse and soft or hard coercion. I mean, all of those things are very, very, very important. I mean, I'm sort of more impressed rather than less impressed by that. But just because I'm not afraid of being called a prude... Let me go one step further back. Ultimately, I think your instincts are exactly right, that the way ahead isn't by further or deepening and sharing around the hedonism. There are a lot of things not to like about Hayes Code era films. So this is sort of prior 1967, when there were very strict guidelines and controls over the depiction of obviously nudity and sex, over much passionate kissing, for instance, anything involving, say, rape or mutual intimidation, anything involving that was simply not allowed to be broadcast, not simply because of the worry that it might offend sensibilities, but also so that wrong ideas, if you like, wouldn't be portrayed in the areas. Now, one of the things that this did was it created a form of creative depiction of i would say of real intimacy of genuine mutual accountability and even mutual ennobling by trying to display romance without displaying romance is this the shot where you just
1: turn away and you see the curtains in the breeze? Is that the shot you're talking about?
0: Yes. I mean, something like that. I think that's a wonderful example. But also, because women couldn't simply be, quote, unquote, voluptuous, they had to be rhetorically powerful and seductive instead. And one of the effects of that, I mean, you can't tell me that Philadelphia Story, or To Have and Have Not, or Casablanca, or Some Like It Hot, You can't tell me that any of those films are better films if you introduced a raucous sex scene into it. It's the very absence of sex scenes. It's the suggestive, it's the rhetorically suggestive nature of the commerce that takes place between the man and the woman that, in fact, elevates the two of them to being one another's equals. John Stuart Mill has this wonderful line in his essay on the subjugation of women where he says that the benchmark, if you like, the litmus test of a truly ethical marriage is the extent to which the man and the woman can look up to one another. I find that actually quite a beautiful description, and it seems to me that it's precisely the absence of sex that enables these figures in these Hayes Code era films to in fact see one another as being able to interrogate one another, to truly morally encounter one another, and ultimately to look up to one another. I think there was a greater degree of erotic poetry involved in those films and what we're really doing now is we're doing puerile depictions of nudity and sex and then saying that it's simply what audiences now in this liberated age want. Yeah. I, I think we're being cheap i think we're being puerile and i think ultimately we're being anti-esthetic i think that's fair enough i just think that what you're
1: describing in the haze era sat atop a certain cultural bedrock.
0: It absolutely the did. The cultural but it, bedrock is different. Look, it absolutely and, did, but it also yeah. didn't simply accommodate itself to that bedrock. It wasn't in a accommodating no. relationship to that, but there was a more pushback, I think, than we realized. Which is where we are now. Yeah. With the new guidelines. Um, this is the minefield. You can listen to the show on
1: RN, uh, which is a radio station and you might be doing that right now, but you don't have to listen on the radio. You can listen on your device because there's the ABC listen up and you can catch us anytime on that. It's also a show that exists as a podcast with extra content where we just keep Banging on. So wherever you subscribe to your podcasts, please subscribe to
0: us. Um, Scott, we have a guest. Yes, despite my enthusiasm, I'm really uncomfortable talking about all this so thank god we have the guests that we do amanda coles is a lecturer in the department of management in the Deakin business school she is uniquely i think in many respects qualified to join us for this particular program amanda thank you so much for coming on the minefield. well
2: thank you scott and thank you alid i'm really this is a super important topic and it's an honor to be here to discuss it with you do you know what i'm, I'm going to do oh, it sorry it is a minefield.
1: it is a minefield you know what i'm going to do scott normally asks a question i'm i'm not Go. going to let him i just want you to talk You've heard what we've been saying. Do you have responses?
2: Yeah, I have a lot. There's a lot to unpack here. And I, I think it's going to be useful to begin to think about what you identified already, Willie. That is, in fact, there's two dimensions to this. And Scott, you spoke to this too. One is about the industrial organization and the power relations that lie within the film industry as a business model. And that's a workplace issue. And that is, those are the things that the Screen Actors Guild and Directors UK and indeed Screen Australia now has a code of conduct that they're working with the industry to implement. I was in a meeting in Canada where the unions got together and developed a code of conduct, a plan to develop a code of conduct in the Canadian film and TV industry. So, that's an industrial issue. And the second issue is a question around representation, Hmm. right? And that's the cultural issue, that you're talking about, and the two cannot be disarticulated. So I'd like to sort of loop the discussion back to where we started, right into that minefield called Game of Thrones. So, I'm with you, Scott, except, <laughs> yes. except I've seen it. All right. Okay? Um, so, Game of Thrones has been widely, widely critiqued in a variety of industry and popular press for the ways in which it depicts violence against women. And I'd like to draw from a really nice quote, actually, from um, Gabrielle Bruni. who wrote an article, early 2019, sorry for being so 2019, <laughs> about this, um, but in which she's talking about the gratuitous nature of violence against women. Uh, in the show, and I think that's really that's really important here, Scott. You use the word disproportionate a lot, so it's not just a question of of what; it's how much, and what is the substance mm. of that representation. So, Gabrielle Bruni writes, "My breaking point had come a bit earlier with the second season, in which then King Joffrey both ordered Sansa half stripped and beaten, and then demanded, at the point of a crossbow, that prostitutes bludgeon each other for his enjoyment." Now, I personally tipped out in season three when they barbecued the children. That was enough for me. That was my breaking point. Okay. So, I think that in the Me Too era, et cetera, we can hopefully generally agree that watching women be stripped naked and bludgeon each other is a distasteful act that does nothing to help contribute toward gender equality and a progressive worldview. But I think it's really critical. Um, that we unpick the business model behind, behind Game of Thrones, getting back to that industrial issue that mm. we talked about. So, Game of Thrones is the most expensive television series ever made. It was made by two men, okay? David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, neither of whom had any experience at all making television series before. Now, that's an Astonishing amount of money and power to hand to two white men with no experience. Now put this against the backdrop of not just the Me Too movement, but the general push for equity, diversity, inclusion, and representation in the workforce more broadly. Right? We have a lot, growing body of huge evidence that white men are largely overrepresented in both television and feature films around the world. So the question becomes who is telling whose stories and under what conditions? So, we have HBO sinking an unprecedented amount of money into two filmmakers who have no experience. And they admitted this at the Austin Film Festival last year. They said, quote, here's a quote from an article. They never really sat down to try and boil down all of the book's essential elements as they found it to be too big. Instead, they said they thought about the scenes they wanted to depict and that the show was about power. Hmm. So if this is an admission by these filmmakers that this is about power, then what does that tell us about power relations, both on screen and off screen in the film industry? And how does that then inform our broader culture more generally?
1: So I've just lost your point there. I don't quite understand the connection you're making. Because the show self-evidently is about power. It's the whole notion of the Game of Thrones, right? It's about what people will do for power and so on. How does that connect to the industry point about power? that you're trying to make?
2: Well, arguably, since this is their show and they weren't listening to fans and they weren't following the book, this is an on-screen representation of what they conceptualize power to be. And this is a show that is misogynist in its foundations. It contains rape, it contains, you know, violence against women at unprecedented levels to the point, this is not new, right? So think about the amount of violence against women that Game of Thrones has to contain in order for it to make news. Let me give you another example. I was doing an interview with an executive director not too long ago for an organization that, is, um, that advocates to increase the number of women directors in the Canadian film and TV industry. And she was talking about rape culture and what this means in relationship to storytellers. And she said, if you talk about men being raped, everybody immediately defaults to deliverance. When you talk about women being raped, nobody really thinks twice about it because it happens so often Mm. on our screens. So then the question is, you know, I, I would like to shift the question from are sex scenes problematic to what is the nature of the sex scenes and what do they say about power and who is in charge of those sex scenes um, to be a much more sophisticated and important conversation. And let me give you an example why. Sex scenes can be really important in driving complicated stories forward. You know, like a really popular example is Brokeback Mountain. So that wouldn't be made under the Hayes Code. This is a movie that complicates the genre of the Western, that complicates notions of masculinity, and you needed sex scenes in that to tell stories about the gay community to drive that forward, right? Um, I consulted with some cinephiles and shout it to Deb Verhoeven for this, who said, you know, point to the film, 2018 Kenyan film Rafiki, which is about LGBT rights in Kenya, and two young girls' relationships with each other. She also references Sessions that stars Helen Hunt and includes sex scenes with disabled people. Mm. Now, those are notable because they're unusual. And the push toward inclusion and representation and belonging in the film industry, both as a political project, as a social, political, and cultural project, is deeply tied to the industrial practices of the film industry As a business, so again, the question is: Who is telling the stories, and what stories are being told?
0: Mm. Just to sort of throw off, I guess, a little bit of the accusation that I'm overly prudish or sort of too enamored with the hays code. I mean, there is a very impressive show that I'm surprised hasn't come up yet. It's also an HBO show. It's David Simon's program, The Deuce, which has just completed its third season about the emergence of the porn industry in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Now, he had an intimacy coach from the very beginning because he was keenly, keenly aware of precisely the abuses, the problems, the the monovision from two men sitting astride the show. But one of the really interesting things as well is given the gratuitous and the salacious nature of the topic, so much extra care was put into, and I can't think of another way of saying this, making the sex on the show incredibly unerotic. Mm. And that's, in fact, the effect of it. It's a remarkable, I think, example of cultural storytelling. The dialogue is fabulous as anybody who knows The Wire would come to expect. And yet there is something about it that steers away, that explores power, I think, powerfully, but that steers away from any kind of gratuitousness Mm -hmm. that would attach to something like the Game of Thrones. So, I think there are ways of doing this. But for me, the real question is, is this story better for having representations or simulations of sex in it? Can the story be told in a way, in a way that is more powerful, more emotionally affective without it? Or is this, if you like, a... Hat tip is as a kind of nod to gratuity that's going to drive audiences, that's going to generate traffic, and so forth. And that's why I think discussions not just about film and television, but also film about novels is interesting. Are novels better here or worse for having the preponderance of sex that many modern novels do? Amanda fire
1: because we are out of time for the radio bit, but you've got a lot more to say in the podcast. Right. I know, this is what happens. Every guest has this experience. You are not unique, let me reassure you. Uh, Amanda Coles is lecturer in the Department of Management in the Deakin Business School, I guess for this week's edition of The Mindfield. the radio portion of which is now at an end. You should see Amanda. She's a coiled spring. She's about to, unload. I've got a feeling, in the podcast
0: extra, which is about to begin now. We'll see you next week on the radio and right now on the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Mind Field during this rather unusual broadcasting period. We look forward to seeing you for another episode next week. There's a question that you tiptoed or you stepped over Mm. very, very quickly, and I'm not too sure that you can do it quite as quickly as you are. Isn't the unthinking preponderance of simulated sex scenes as a kind of default, as an unnecessary Gratuitous or unnecessary moments in virtually every mainstream film or virtually every television program above the M rating. This is just part of the, even a show, for instance, that I quite love, like True Detective. The sex scenes screened. A kind of good old boy misogyny that I found really, really offensive. And yet they're simply throw in as a way of, I don't know, deepening the characters or, you know, depicting the fact that this is a this one of the central characters in season one is, in fact, a kind of misogynist pig. I don't see why you need to do that. It seems it seems to me both narratively cheap, but also morally hypocritical. There are other ways of doing it. So I, I, I want to put you on the spot is the predominance of sex scenes as such morally unproblematic.
2: I'm going to I'm going to go back to your point about misogyny, right? In the ways in which that that is, you know, The default setting in relationship to the sex scenes and say, yeah, of course, Scott, because the film and TV industry is a sexist, racist, misogynist industry. But even when it's telling
0: these stories constantly. It's
2: very bones. So you cannot separate the culture of the industry from the culture of the content. True, true, true. But, But sorry, just to go further to that point,
0: even when they're telling the stories of misogynist characters consciously. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not, it's not a sleight of hand. They really are depicting that this character really is like this. What I'm wondering is, do you really need that depiction? You even have this, for instance, from season two onwards in Mad Men, where I think there are some appalling moments that were completely avoided in the first season, and yet without any narrative deficit. I thought first season was far more effective than the seasons afterwards for yep. showing this kind of jocular yep. misogyny.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, what what I'm not going to say, because I don't believe it's true, is that sex scenes by default are problematic. As an industrial practice and at work on set, do they need to be managed extremely carefully as we are now seeing a better industrial engagement by key players in navigating the complicated nature of this? As you just said, in the same way that we manage stunts, in the same way we manage car crashes, right? It's that's a workplace health and safety issue, protection at work. So that's really, and that's why the unions are there. That's what they do. The bigger question is who is making decisions about what the story narrative is and what drives that story Hmm. narrative forward. Okay, so when we talk about feature films, directors have a huge amount of power over what happens in the narrative structure of that feature film. When we talk about television, episodic directors have much less power, not no power, but much less. It's really the showrunners, and behind all of this is the studios, right? So, we have to look at the structural power of capital. Who is making investment decisions about what gets made and what sells? What are our our preconceptions that the industry holds about what is marketable content? What is going to drive audiences to places? Um, so, Birds of Prey, it's directed by, oh, I'm going to forget her name. If someone could pull up the name of the director, I that would be fantastic. Look at right her now. She deserves to be recognized. And it was um, the preceding film. Kathy Yen. Thank you very much, who is a young Asian director. And this is her first big superhero feature film. We're really excited that she's on the scene. Um, in Suicide Squad that preceded it, Harley Quinn was much more scantily clad. Right? This was also true in the first time we saw Wonder Woman in the movies, both of them directed by men. Then you put a woman in the director's chair, like Patty Jenkins, and all of a sudden the costumes change, the sexualized nature of them changes, the, sco- the story content changes. And I'm not saying that women are by default going to make better movies about women. Right, Because that's an essentialist argument. But one of the things that we do need to think about... There is an about... aesthetic
0: argument, though, as well there. And I think just Greta Gerwig's Little Women. I mean, it is a masterpiece. And I think that is, in many respects... It was so great a. she got
2: nominated for an Oscar, don't you think?
0: Yeah, but then everything became... Anyway, anyway, let's leave it there.
2: <laughs> um, but you know, I think getting back to your original point, Scott, about the sex scenes and then really seriously trying to connect that with who makes the content and who makes decisions about what goes in that content as a product. The point of making this content is to sell it to audiences. Um, is that... You know, women and other marginalized communities, disabled communities, LGTBIQ communities, racialized communities, indigenous communities want opportunities to be represented in complicated and flawed Mm. ways, right? Not in these really sanitized, stereotypical, this is part of the problem that we have with the interaction between screen content and broader social relations. Mm. So when you're talking about that, you know, swooning uh, of the haze area, Era, I think, wow, number one, that's really heterosexist, right? We're not talking about complicated no, relationships here, right? That actually, I don't think, did a huge amount for women's emancipation or their ability to be fully, to be full agents in their own sexuality, as complicated as that is. I
0: disagree. Oh, okay. I don't um, know if I'm, I'm, but, I'm, know, I'm allowed to disagree, but I really disagree.
2: As I as I admitted to you, I am not a cinephile. I am an expert in the industrial infrastructure and <laughs> program. Of, of how the movie business works. But I do want to say, you know, I think a useful device that we need to think through here, and this is, to, to both of your points, really taken off after the, the Me Too movement, is there, have, we've heard a bit, the Bechdel test, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so for our listeners, the Bechdel test was created in 1985, it's a test that gives us a, a rough sense, not a perfect test of how female creators, uh, female characters are represented on screen. So, the three questions. Two female characters have to be in the film who talk to each other about something other than a man. That's a pretty low bar. Since we've started to ramp up discussions globally about inclusion representation, right, both on and off screen... We've come up with new tests. So, Manola Dargas, the film critic for the New York Times said, what about the DuVernay test? Hmm. Um, And she says, in which African Americans and other minorities have fully realized lives rather than serve as scenery in white stories. Lena Waithe, who is the first black woman to ever win an Emmy, proposed a test that would query whether there's a black woman at work, who's in a position of power and in a healthy relationship. And Kimberly Pierce, the mighty Kimberly Pierce, um, who directed Boys Don't Cry, Stop Loss, and indeed the 2013 remake of Carrie, um, said a movie passes the test if there's a female protagonist or antagonist with her own story, the female lead has dimension, exists authentically with needs and desires, that she pursues through dramatic action and the audience can empathize with or understand those desires and actions. Mm. Now, that's a complicated character. That is not a reductionist character. And that that basket of thinking opens up questions, you know, about sex scenes, but opens them up in a much deeper Mm. way, I would argue.
1: I think that's all true, but I feel like we're a long way from the question of sex on screen particularly. Because what I want your thoughts on, is the notion of objectification. So in the world that you envisage, what role is there for objectification? Is there none? Is there some, but it's equal opportunity? Is it done within certain guidelines? Because that to me is actually where the rubber hits the road. I feel like everything else that you can talk about here really becomes window dressing to this central idea. If, oh. we're ta- if we're limiting our contemplation to the, the phenomenon of sex on screen.
2: of oh, sex on screen.
1: Yeah.
2: Look, I'm going to do an, an unpopular answer and say objectification of what, by whom, under what circumstances, and for what story purpose.
1: Mm. I think, see, this is, I think, where you and I differ, because I think that's the beginning of the problem. Maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but to me... It's the same sort of phenomenon as the Amelia Clark free the pea thing, right? This idea that something that um, is overwhelmingly oppressive can somehow be weaponized for advancement. Oh. That somehow we can just rebadge it, retool it, reuse it, and then we will achieve equality no. somehow just strikes me as hopelessly naive and will only ever produce one outcome.
2: Well, that... Uh, I- I would disagree also with the race to the bottom argument, okay. right? So, so what do you the mean? The answer then to you... equality is not more exploitation.
1: So what do you mean then when you, talk, when, you, when you come up with your list of questions about by whom and for what purpose and so on?
2: Look, I think all really good screen to- content starts with a really good story. And, you know, I wish I could come up with an answer right now where there's a reason for something or someone to be objectified as a story pivot point that then launches, you know, another set of actions or a narrative structure, etc., etc. The storytelling world is so huge, Mm. right? And right now we are getting... A slice of, like a sliver of the kinds of stories that we should be seeing. That is the problem. So, I'm reluctant to give you a blanket answer on the question of objectification. I can answer it in the context of mainstream storytelling right now Mm -hmm. and say 100%. The objectification of women on screen has a dialectic, interactive relationship with the uh, objectification of women in society more broadly.
1: Yeah, and what I want to add to that is there's plenty of objectification of men on screen as well, and this should not be seen as advancement. That's right. right?
2: Correct. Let me give you a great example. Uh, in another kind of screen storytelling, video games, right? So bigger than film and TV, the only one that's, as, that's bigger than both. What's the only screen industry that's bigger than both of them?
1: I was going to say sport until you said screen industry. Porn. <laughs> Porn. Would be Porn. But porn's part of the film and TV
2: industry, isn't mm-hmm. it? Not if you're studying it in an industrial infrastructure sense. Uh, Anyway, so my, I think he was about eight or nine then, year old son. Uh, made a pitch to get the latest Lara Croft video game and he came with a set of arguments that were fairly impressive saying look mom this time you know she's fully dressed she uh, you know has her own storyline a
1: fully realized tragic he, backstory yeah as a yeah of fact. okay exactly and advanced through dramatic action yeah. i think so,
2: <laughs> yes. so i'm i'm just so <laughs> impressed at the pitch yeah That I say, okay. And then he turns around and he says something to me that I will never forget. And he says, most men don't look like Batman, mom, Mm. right? So, you know, this is about complicating our gender stories. This is about complicated stories about masculinity as much as it is about complicating stories about um, women and their objectification, Right. So th- do you remember the Gillette commercial that came out last mm-hmm. year? that was you know, I
1: never saw it because I was overseas at the time, but I remember the big kerfuffle.
2: Right. Yes. So it was basically about like violence against women is bad. Mm. Seemingly not contentious right? Huge uproar about what is a razor company doing, intervening in this, you know, social issue. And I think that opens up really interesting questions because it's not just about, you know, the commercialization of gender equality, but fundamentally, you know, it's it's Gillette decides to intervene in this space using screen content um, to send a message. So, I think we have to remember a few things. One, we live in an era where we have more screen content than we've ever, ever had Mm -hmm. before. And this is driving a huge explosion in demand for content. So, the film industry is getting bigger. We have an opportunity here to make it different. That's critical. And I think things are starting to change. Mm -hmm. Uh, Secondly, we put our children in front of screens before they can walk and talk. So, we have to understand that screens are a socializing space. Right? They're not just a mirror for our society, mm-hmm. they shape our society. So stories can unite and inspire and empower, but they can divide and marginalize and oppress. So I think particularly in the media, those of us who study in the media and those of us who work in the media have to start talking about stories in a much more complicated framework. And thirdly, we have to remember that if the screen industry is, if our screen content is a socializing space, the people who make the content grew up on content. So what did they learn about tropes around women, tropes around rape culture, etc. by the time they get into positions of power, where they're making decisions themselves about not just who makes it, but in fact, what it looks like. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the really curious things here, though, is there is a preparedness. So, one of my children's favorite books is Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy, the first book of which was made into a disastrous film some years ago, and it's just been turned into by HBO an eight part. The first book has been turned into an eight part -part television series. It's magnificent. There is an appetite, I think, for different kinds of long form storytelling that maybe break out of some of some of the more formulaic depictions. Hot central character, hot side character. You watch the on screen chemistry, chemistry and you know it's going to come two thirds of the way through the whatever. So there does seem to be a preparedness to explore the depth, the contradictions, the moral difficulties, the plainness, the ordinariness of characters over a longer form. I've also noticed over the last three years there's been a preparedness to do less than perfectly attractive central characters, less than perfectly shaped central characters. I mean, all those things are kind, of, are kind of interesting. The other thing I find very interesting is the preparedness to draw increasingly on novels for good long-form content. And this is where I think maybe some of the lessons of late 19th century, early 20th century fiction Even if we don't want to go quite so far back as the Hayes Code, there's something important here about the way in which figures like Jane Austen, like George Eliot, like, I mean, dare I say, even someone like D.H. Lawrence, were able to use sexual and romantic tension at crucial moments to deepen, to humanize characters. But without ever falling back on that gratuitous release valve. Or someone like D.H. Lawrence to make sex central to a film, uh, central to a book, but then again, not in a way that was necessarily gratuitous or even exploitative. So I think that there are, there, are, I'm really glad you're sort of saying new forms of storytelling, but that has to include forms of storytelling that have the sexual dimension to it taken out altogether newer and richer and different forms for instance of friendship that don't lead anywhere this is exactly what i'm talking deep of. relationships between male and female characters where the only way that the woman is let out of the fact that she's going to be in bed with a male character isn't that she's a lesbian correct do you know what i mean yep. these yep. are still these are still fairly cheap tropes i think that we're trading in i guess my question is Is there a step past this where something like rich, deep, fully human relationships can in fact be portrayed without that kind of that lure of gratuity always hanging on the sides? Problem is we're very much out of time, so it's probably better
1: to hear from you, Amanda. But since you handballed to me, um, I think the problem that we have is that you are in the end talking about a commercial product. And one of the things that commercial products are extremely good at doing is exploiting the preferences, the weaknesses of their audiences. We see it in everything from chocolate bars through to films, right? I just find it hard to imagine within a prevailing liberal worldview that that exploitation, not just of the actors, but of the audience Mm -hmm. can cease. I don't see the mechanism for it. You're asking really an industry to take upon itself or to forego of its own volition a particular commercial avenue that is going to be very, very lucrative. What did you say? The porn industry is the biggest industry. What is that if not the exploitation of the, the human weaknesses of people to create a market? Mm-hmm. That's what it is, right? That's not going away. The only way that goes away is if you start to have a more thoroughgoing cultural reimagining that sweeps up corporations within it or imposes itself upon corporations. And this is where I become, sus is not quite the right word, but not overly enthused by codes of conduct. Mm. I just don't think they can do that job.
2: I think what codes of conduct will do is take the sex scenes that are already written, that have already been decided that are going to happen, and make those safe workplace. hopefully, go a long way to make them as safe as possible for the people who are involved in that particular occupational activity, which is it about is a half a job.
1: percent
0: of the issue.
2: Correct. Well, well, hang, hang on. The very fact
0: that so many established, powerful directors are now complaining about the presence of intimacy coaches on sets and the lack of spontaneity and the additional level of difficulty—I mean, there's a powerful driver of change right there. Mm-hmm. If. You simply reach... You know how I feel about Codes of conduct. so you're saying they'll just decide sex scenes are too much trouble.
1: Yeah. I suspect they might count some dollars at some point.
2: (laughs) We could go on forever. Thank you both. I love how she's doing her own
1: raps. (laughs) This is brilliant. We've never had a guest just rap us like that. And she's absolutely right to do so. Well done, Amanda. You can come back. In fact, do you want to just host the show on your own from now on? We'll take the rest of the time. We'll still get the money. (laughs) But you can just do this. Oh,
2: that's just like how it usually works. That's
1: exactly right. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm a status quo person. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.